Amen to that. Church, you can go ahead and have a seat. And as you do, uh, David teased something at the top of our service I want to let you guys know about right before we get into the word this morning, uh, and that is Grace Reform Network. Uh, this is something that has been in the works for a long time, uh, behind the scenes, really since we planted. So something we started working on uh, back then. And basically the goal is to have an, an association of like-minded churches that are similar in terms of our doctrinal convictions and the way that we do ministry so that we could partner and share resources and hopefully in the long run be more effective for the gospel. Um, to have mutual support and fellowship from other churches, all of those sorts of things. And in a lot of ways, we've benefited from this in a huge way already in the person of, of David, right? We brought him on here as a church planting resident to train him and hopefully ultimately to plant a church through him. Well, the connection with him came through the early work of getting this network going. Um, so we've already gleaned from this. But the exciting thing is that all the work on this so far has been very much a little slog behind the scenes of like four people just chipping away at documentation and all this kind of stuff. Uh, but we're getting out of that phase, right, to where this thing can actually really operate and really hopefully serve the advance of the gospel. And that really kicks off in October where we are going to have a conference. Uh, a conference is October 3rd through the 5th. In this conference, the first two days are going to be kind of what you would expect from a Christian conference, right? There's going to be talks, Q&A, food, fellowship, worship, all of that kind of stuff around the distinctives, the things that really we value as Christ's church, things like law gospel distinction and our confession of faith and, and all of these things. Um, so that's going to be really great. And you guys are invited to that. Uh, it's free for you to come. It's just going to be up the road in Smyrna. So we've got the benefit of it being pretty local to us. Um, you can just, all you need to do is register because we do have a limited amount of space. So you can hop on the website. It's gracereformnetwork.org. I'll push out the registration to you this week as well. I'd love to have you guys there. Uh, it's going to be a really, really great time. Uh, the third day of that is going to be for churches who are interested in joining and partnering together. And that's when we'll do kind of the official work of chartering this network uh, as we partner together for the sake of the gospel. So key things for you guys to know. First of all, be praying for us. There's a fair bit of work that goes into putting on a conference, but we're, you know, figuring it out on the fly. So be praying for us that the Lord would help us get all that stuff together. If you can come, come. I'd love to have you guys there. I think it'd be deeply encouraged about the fact that what we are doing here at Covenant Grace, it's good, and I'm so thankful for it, but we are not all that needs to happen for the sake of the gospel. Right? We want to be connected with other churches who are faithfully doing the same thing, and we want to support them, and we will need their support in, in various ways in the life of our church. So I think you'll be encouraged to see other like-minded brothers and sisters from other parts of the country who are pursuing the same thing that we are. And lastly, uh, if you can, we are going to probably need some volunteers to help us put this thing on. So if you are free that, that week... Um, we're having kind of a final planning meeting to nail down details on that on Tuesday. So after that, I'll be able to kind of give you a better picture of exactly what that looks like. But if you've got some time and could help us host, you know, pass things out, run refreshments, there'll be a, an assortment of different ways you could potentially serve there. We'd love for you to do that. Our, our church and the church we planted out of Grace Reform Church is going to be doing the bulk of that because we're local. So we don't have to bring people from far and wide. We, we can be kind of here. So... Anyway, love your guys' prayers for that. Uh, it's exciting, and I think it's really going to serve the gospel well. Uh, even just thinking about very tangibly for us as we're training David and he's growing and God's getting him ready to plant a church or whatever that looks like for him down the road. Um, what a gift to be able to have a bunch of churches who are walking in the same direction that we can go out to and reach out to for support when he starts this thing. But church planting is hard. It's difficult. You need a lot of resources, and it's not usually enough resources that one church can provide. So we'll have a pool of like-minded churches who have already locked arms to be able to contribute and join in with that. So really excited about this. I think it's going to really help us uh, not just get too ingrown as a church, right? We, we want to care for ourselves. That's what the part of what the church is for, is to care for the saints. But it's also about always taking the gospel forward, seeing more churches planted so more people can find the rest in Christ that we're trying to give to people here. And this is going to serve us well in that. So... All right, that is Grace Reform Network. I'll push out more information to you guys this week, but uh, it's exciting stuff, and it's going to be great opportunities for us to continue to make Christ known. 
With that, let's jump into our text. We are back in Matthew 6, back in the Lord's Prayer. We are getting towards the end of it. Uh, We've been taking our time. The Lord's Prayer is a a central text for the Christian church. It always has been. In the the long years before we were blessed and privileged to have copies of our own Bible, the, the primary things the church oriented Christians' discipleship around were the Apostles' Creed, the Ten Commandments, and the Lord's Prayer. Uh, as a kind of big hooks, things that people could remember to orient their lives of following Christ. So this is a very seminal text for us, and it always has been for the church. So let me read it for us again. Matthew 6, starting in verse 9. Jesus tells us this, Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have forgiven those, as we have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. We pray for us. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for giving it to us. We thank you. Everything you give us, everything you've told us is needful for us. And this uh, particular section, uh, that you would forgive our debts, is so important. It's at the very core of who we are as Christians. And I pray that if our hearts have grown dull to it, uh, Lord, that you would awaken us. If it's new to us, if we've never realized the glory that is in that simple statement, that you would stir cold hearts and open, closed ears to hear it for the first time is the good news and the power of God and his salvation. Help us by your spirit this morning, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, so as we focus in on this particular phrase of the Lord's Prayer that we ask that the Father would forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, Jesus is teaching us how to pray about our biggest problem. He's teaching us how to pray about our biggest problem. Now, that may be a big statement, right? There's a lot of people in this room coming from a lot of different places with a lot of different challenges in life. Some of you might look at me and be like, you don't even know my name. How do you know what my biggest problem is? You don't know my life. And that's fair. And that's fair. But I don't say that Jesus is going to address our biggest problem because I have some special insight into your life. I say it because I have the same problem. So does the person sitting next to you. For human beings, all of us have the same biggest problem. Regardless of the circumstances of our life, regardless of how things are at the moment, the biggest problem in our lives is universal. It's common to everyone in this room. It's common beyond this room. It's common to Christians and non-Christians. And that problem is that we are indebted to God. We are indebted to God. And that's how we're going to start. We're going to explore what does that mean exactly. How are we indebted to God? And what, what are the implications of that for us as people? But this doesn't just teach us that that's our biggest problem. It also teaches us, in teaching us how to pray this way, it teaches us how to address our biggest problem. What does that biggest problem need? The answer to that, the only answer to that, the answer that the Christian faith provides is the forgiveness of sins. We're going to look at that. What is the forgiveness of sins and how is it possible for us? And lastly, we're going to see that when when the biggest problem of your life, the only essential problem of your life is, is solved and is met in such an incredibly audacious, beautiful, abundant way, such as the forgiveness of sins, it changes you. It reshapes you. It makes you into a different person who cannot look at people and relate to people the same way again. So that's the way we're going to move through and look at what Jesus teaches us to pray here. We are going to look at our debt. We are going to look at forgiveness, and then we are going to look at others. So let's talk about debt. We all know something of this, right? Unfortunately, we probably wish we didn't. 
right? We all have a mortgage or a car payment or student loans or credit cards or something, right? We, we know what it means to be indebted, right? For somebody else to have a claim on you, for, some, for somebody else to be able to send you a piece of paper in the mail that says, give me your money, right? We know what this is like. If you don't, God bless you. We, we, we all want to be more like you, right? Uh, we know this is a bad thing, right? Like being debt-free is one of those kind of like, almost like American ideals. If you just get out from under all those claims. You know, I know I've got my Ramsey people in here too. This is right in your, right in your wheelhouse, right? right? Debt, we know about debt. This is familiar and common to all of us. But here in this prayer, we're not talking about just any sort of debt. Who are we praying to in the Lord's Prayer? We're praying to our Father. We're praying to the God of the universe. And we are saying to him, forgive us our debts. So what's insinuated there is that the the person we are in debt to, it's not the bank, it's not the car dealership, it's not the credit card company, it's a holy God. The God of the universe is the one in whom we are in debt. Which means that this debt didn't occur because you opted into it, right? I have a mortgage, but I signed, it's felt like 87,000 pieces of paper to get that mortgage, right? And that's what gives the bank the right to send me paper demanding money every month, right? But you're not responsible for my mortgage. You didn't sign that. Well, our debt to God is different. So we are indebted to God, not because we signed up for something, because we raised our hand, because we said, I'm in. We are indebted to God because he's our creator. He made us. You have life and breath because he decided to give it to you. Right? So in a very real sense, you exist only because of him. And because of that, he has full rights and authority over every bit of his creation. He gets to decide whatever he wants to do with it. He gets to set the standard for what is required of it. You don't have to agree with it. You don't have to like it. But it is still true. It is still true. It is still true. So we are indebted to God, and all of us are indebted to God. But what is this debt, right? What is it that we owe to God? Well, when we look at this throughout Scripture, it becomes pretty clear. What we owe to God, what human beings, all human beings owe to God, is personal, perfect, perpetual obedience to Him. Perfect personal, perpetual righteousness. Another way of putting it would be to say that we are required to love God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, love him supremely at all times in everything, and to love our neighbors as ourselves at all times in everything. That is what he has called us to do. That is what he made us for. That is the standard that he set for his creatures. This is what you are to do. And he has the authority to do so because he is our creator couple of passages that draw out that, that this is the requirement. James 2.10 says, for whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. Right? So, so the requirement is just kind of do this some of the time. Or kind of do it most of the time. Or do it better than the guy next to you. Or do it better than them out there. Do it better than the liberals. No. If you fail in, in one way, you've broken the whole thing. Right? The standard here is perfection. Matthew 5.48 drives it home well when Jesus tells us that we must be perfect even as our Heavenly Father is perfect. So that's the debt. That's what we're talking about. God is our creator. Right? He determines what we are to do with our lives and he has set the bar for what that is. We are to love him supremely and our neighbor as ourselves perfectly always. That is what we owe to him. To a man. Every single one of us. Scripture is also clear that there's not a single one of us who is on time with our payments with this debt. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's another passage that says, There's not a single man who does good all the time and never sins. Not a single person on earth who does that. That shouldn't be surprising to you. You know people, you know yourselves. This, this shouldn't be shocking. Right, if that's the bar, clearly none of us live up to it. 
So we start to get the picture of what this debt is, right? We see what God requires of us, and we see the fact that not only are we required to continue to make these payments, we've been in default for a long, long time, right? To the point where not only can we not pay what it is owed, we are now have incurred incredible penalties, penalties totaling up to the price of death. This is literally a debt that you cannot afford, that you cannot pay and live. So our world, broadly, has, there's a couple ways we handle this naturally, right? Because as people, whether you're a Christian or not, whether you know this from Scripture or not, we all kind of have a sense that this is true. We're made in the image of God. He's given us something we call the conscience. That isn't perfect, but we have some sense that there is right and there is wrong, and we, are, we should do right and we shouldn't do wrong. Right? We all know this to some degree. And so, naturally, in our sin, we, we try to figure out what to do with this. Just the same way we want to be debt-free, we want to get out from that, those demands, we start trying to look for that, right? We don't like living with people having claims on us. So how do we get out? Well, one of the natural ways we do it is to pretend it doesn't exist, right? Pretend it doesn't exist. Pretend that this debt is a fiction, that it is not real, right? So one way to wriggle out of being a debt to God is just say there is no God. Or if there is a God, he doesn't have any standards, or, or his standards look just like mine, or his, his bar for living looks exactly like me, and it just moves to wherever I happen to be on a given day. Right? It, it, to do this is to act and operate as if God does not exist, and that there's no objective requirement to be righteous. A phrase that happens over and over again in the book of Judges captures this way of handling it really well. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Maybe written for 3,000 years ago, but it rings really true, right? Things haven't changed a whole lot. That This is our world, right? Everybody does what is right in their own eyes. I don't want to feel guilty. I don't want to feel indebted, so I am going to decide that whatever I feel like, however I am, that's the bar for righteousness. That's what it means to be right. And so I just pretend that there is no God, that there is no demand on my life. Now, this sounds kind of good at first glance. You can see why the world would run to it, right? Nobody can judge me if there's no bar. My, my feelings can be the barometer of what's valid and what's right. I've essentially usurped God's place, and now I get to be the determiner of things. This, you know, this feels free at first. But the problem is reality does not change on our whims. Just because you feel a certain thing or want something to be different does not make it so. When I get my mortgage bill in the mail, I can decide to pretend I don't have a mortgage. I cannot send them their money. And it might feel real good for a little bit. But what's going to happen? Is that going to go well for me? Am I going to get to live in that fiction long term? No! Reality will come up and it will bite me because I am in debt. I do owe them that money and they're going to take back my house. It's going to happen. And it doesn't matter what I think about it. And the same is true with us. It really does not matter what people think about who God is or about his righteous standards for the world or anything like that. He is the authority over this world. He does get to set the standard. He is the bar for righteousness, and our feelings about it don't change anything. So to pretend that way, it feels good in the moment, because we get to act like we are fine. But that reality comes. And the longer you live in that fiction, the harder that reality slaps when it hits you. Right? So this is one of the ways that our world tries to handle this. Just just pretend it doesn't exist. There is no God. There's no standard of right. I can do whatever I want to. I'm not actually guilty. I'm I'm fine. Everything is fine. Ostrich, head in the sand. Maybe everything will just go away. 
But the truth is, it doesn't really matter how religious or how irreligious you are, we can't really live in that very long. Because again, we're made in God's image and we have a conscience. We know we're accountable to something. So even people who want to live like this and think this sounds really good, they don't stay here long, right? They end up shifting and molding and and doing this next thing, which is ultimately, instead of pretending the debt's not there, it recognizes that there's a debt, but it pretends that this debt is payable, right? That this debt is manageable, right? That I can handle it. It recognizes that there's some standard of right, right? Like our world, even is in the world of postmodern, individualistic, relativistic nonsense, everybody still has a standard for right and wrong. It just changes every two days. It depends on who you're talking to at the moment, what side of the bed they got up on, but there still ends up being this bar. And when you don't meet it, you get canceled, right? So the whole pretending that there isn't something, it's all fake, and it, event- it dies really quickly. And it gets replaced with this, this modified version, right? Where the standard, what is required, gets adjusted. It gets relativized. It gets made, made payable, right, in some way. Rather than being this perfect perpetual righteousness that we're owed and, and death merited for sin, it becomes just kind of this, be better than the guy next to you, you know? Some kind of massaged, weakened, softened thing that's possible to, do, to, to keep. We've seen this with the Pharisees in Matthew, right? The section of the Sermon on the Mount we were going through when Jesus was talking about the law and clarifying what it meant. What we saw over and over again is that the Pharisees had relativized the law. They had softened it, right? They wanted to be able to make oaths, so they found ways to make oaths that weren't, weren't as binding, right? They wanted to be able to divorce their wives when they wanted to, so they came up with a way to do that, They wanted to be able to sin, to do what they wanted to do, and so they took it upon themselves to soften God's law and soften his standard. And Jesus said, no, you don't get to do that. It doesn't work that way. So it can work in very religious-looking ways, like the Pharisees, like modern-day legalism, and it can show up in very legalistic, very irreligious ways like the modern secular insanity that our world seems to spiral deeper and deeper into where we want to deny things like bare facts of nature. So in this image, if we we go back to the picture of a mortgage, rather than pretending I don't have a mortgage, I I, I get the bill for my mortgage. Great, yep, I do have a mortgage. Can't, Can't get out from under that. So I go into my closet, get out the pink Monopoly money, Count it out, stick it in the elf, send it off. I'm good. There we go. I've paid my debt with this, with this, this version. I think this should count. Right? That's what all these other standards, other bars of righteousness are. This is like, okay, well, let me just massage it. I want to pay what I want to pay with what I want to pay it. And that should work. Right? At first, it seems better than the other one. I did something, at least. My my neighbor didn't send in anything. At least I sent in the Monopoly money. It was pretty good. But you end up the exact same place as those who pretend there's no debt at all. The Monopoly money isn't legal tender to pay that debt. It's worth nothing. So all your contrived, fake, made-up, half-hearted righteousness your ability to conform to society's standards in the moment, your broken attempts at halfway keeping the law of God, none of those come close to doing anything to this debt that you've incurred. So the reality is this, the, this debt that we have, that Jesus has us praying here about, it's, it's not payable. You know, we think very differently about debt depending on how much it is, Right? If I borrow five bucks from you to get some gas, so that doesn't get you much gas anymore. It's probably up that amount, right? And I owe you five bucks. I'm not going to lose a lot of sleep about that, right? I feel pretty good about being able to pay that back. If I'm in debt half a million dollars to somebody, 
that is, a, I feel very differently about that. If I'm in debt a billion dollars, I'm in a totally different place because I can't even conceive of that amount of zeros on any dollar amount or figure or check. Like that's just a different plane of existence than I've ever known, right? And so one of the dangerous things we do is when we can start to conceive of this debt as some small thing, something that's manageable, something we can keep up on. I may have to pay interest only for a while, but you know, well, I'll get back on my feet, right? There's a parable that Jesus tells that talks about very similar things, and there's a servant who comes to a king, and he owes him some insane amount of money. Forget what, you know, with inflation, the exchange, it's, it's something. That, and he goes to the king and says, just give me more time, I'll pay. And it's ridiculous. There's no way this guy could pay. He's a laborer. He could not make this money in a dozen lifetimes, right? And sometimes that's what we do when it comes to our debt to God, right? We look at ourselves like, okay, I've got to get myself out of this, right? So I either have to, I either have to make, make it the standard lower or I have to inflate my view of what I'm actually doing. But they don't do the job. Scripture confronts us over and over again that this debt that you have, yes, you have it and you cannot pay it. And we have to see that. We have to see that. Ephesians, uh, Scripture in other places talks about this debt and it talks about us being dead, in our sins, dead in our trespasses, dead in our debts. Dead people are not very good at paying off their debts, right? They can't work, they can't earn money, they, they don't do anything, right? That's the picture we should have when it comes to this debt. Ephesians 2, 1 says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Dead people don't do anything. It's part of the definition of being dead. Further on down in that same chapter, Ephesians 2.8 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. Ephesians 2 is all about the fact that the dealing with these trespasses is not something that you can do. You have to despair of that. You have to give up on your ability to handle it. So one of the things that when Jesus is teaching us to pray this way, when we cultivate praying, confessing our sins, one of the things that we're doing is that we are remembering reality, right? A, a reality that we want to forget and that we want to alter and that we want to change and that the world constantly is spinning in doctrine and changing, right? We are remembering the truth that I am indebted to God in a way that I cannot pay. I owe him something that I do not have. And we don't like to remember that. We wish it was different, but it is true. And we have to face true things even when they are hard if we are going to actually move through them. There's just no good to solve a problem that doesn't exist. We need to look at the problem as it actually is. So when we pray as a church, when we are a church that confesses sin, whether we do it corporately like we do here, or we're doing it in you know, small groups when we meet up with somebody for coffee, or doing it by ourselves in our house, when we as Christ's church pray, we confess our sins. This is something that the church should be known for, right? Think about all the things people know the church for. We should be known for, we're, those are the people that confess their sins. This should be a thing with us, right? And one of the things that that does with our witness to the world is that we are bearing witness to the world about its true conditions, right? Because it wants to pretend like this doesn't exist or it wants to pretend that it's manageable. And so when we pray this way, when our lives are marked by this confession that reflects truth and reality, we are bearing witness to the truth, right? While they live in this make-believe world, we are bearing a constant witness to, no, you can't pretend your way out of this. No, you cannot work your way out of this. This is the truth. And that is why, that's why we're here, church. We are Christ's ministers. We are his representatives here to bear witness to the truth. And to love the world well, we have to tell them the truth about their status about what they actually need. So when we are praying for the forgiveness of sins, we're living in reality next to the play-acting world that's just over here cosplaying, doing its own thing. We are showing them reality by doing this. Whether it's the, the godless, irreligious world or the falsely religious world that thinks it can earn and pay this debt back. Praying this forgiveness of sins, it, it unmasks both of them. It exposes both of them for the sham that they are. Now, the beautiful thing is, in, in, in teaching us to pray this way, Jesus doesn't just 
expose our, our biggest need. He does that, right? And, it, and he tells us to pray in a way that, that keeps us mindful of it all the time. But embedded in this prayer is not just the need, but the answer. The, the solution to the seemingly insurmountable problem. Right? The Christian faith puts forward a way, the only way of actually dealing with this debt that works. Pretending it doesn't exist doesn't work. Trying to pay it doesn't work. The answer to this debt is forgiveness. The answer to this debt is forgiveness. Notice that Jesus doesn't say, pray, Father, help us pay off our debts. We pray that our debts would be forgiven. Now, see, here's the thing about forgiveness, right? And there's big uproar about this. You guys remember the whole student loan forgiveness thing? It's not a political sermon. But this is something that came out, right? And, and there was all this uproar about it, right? And the uproar was about something. And it, it points to a truth about debt that we need to understand when we look at this, right? So the, when you forgive debt, it doesn't just vanish, right? Somebody always pays, right? Like once there is a debt, somebody always pays. Somebody always pays. And that's why that was controversial. If we could just wish away that, nobody would care. They're asking, like, hey, if you take this away from somebody, so then somebody else is picking up the tab. That's the way that forgiveness works. The only way for debt to be forgiven is for somebody else to pay it. Right? And this is particularly true with a holy God. There are some constructions within Christianity that, that, that understand forgiveness as, as God can just decide not to care about sin. Well, if you hold that view, you have a different God. You don't have a God worthy of worship. You don't have a holy God who's righteous. You have a totally different, it's not the Christian God. Right? God cannot simply overlook these debts. He becomes something different. All that makes him who he is gets compromised. So if there's going to be forgiveness for debt, somebody has to pay. And if we can't pay, then it's got to be somebody else. So what you're asking for, when you say, Father, forgive my debts, you're saying, Father, accept someone else's payment for me. Don't make me pay. Accept somebody else's payment for me. And stop demanding mine. I think one of the best passages to see how that actually works why forgiveness of sins can be a reality and is a reality for Christians is in Colossians 2. Colossians 2.13 says this, When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven all our transgressions. Now listen to verse 14. Having canceled out the certificate of debt, consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. All right, so Paul is talking about our problem with the same language, this, this, this debt language. And he, but he's going into more detail. Right, and he talks about this, this certificate of debt. Think about like an IOU. Right, this is what you owe. Right, and, and think about this list. And it's the list of all the ways you failed to love God supremely. The ways you did it by commission, the ways you did it by omission, all the ways you failed to love your neighbor as yourself. And there's just this list. It just goes on and on and on and on. All the ways you have not paid this debt. You have not done what God requires of you. And I love how Paul describes it here. He, he drives home the, the, the force of this. It's, he says this, this certificate of death consists of decrees against us. These things, we look at them and they accuse us. They just yell, you, you owe this, you owe this, you owe this. So there are decrees against us which are hostile to us. This thing is our enemy. It pins us down. It makes us accountable for something we cannot do. This thing has to die. It is our enemy. And it's there. And then, listen to what he says. He does with it. He takes that 
that laundry list of all your failures, all the ways that you have not done what God has done, and he takes it and he nails it where? To the cross of Jesus Christ. The, the Roman practice of crucifixion, when they crucified a criminal, one of the things they did, the big reason you did crucifixion was because it was a deterrent. It's a horrific, gruesome way to die. Part of the reason you did it was for the shock factor. You did this, and you did this in public places where people would see it. Well, part of the way that that works is that you want people to know why that person's there, so they know what not to do. So, the reason they're crucified would be nailed to the cross with them. Remember when Jesus was crucified, and it was the behold, the king of the Jews? That, that, that was not an, an honorary thing. That was his crime. That's why he was being killed. And it was the Romans kind of throwing shade at the Jews. The Jews didn't like it. It's like, don't say that. He's not him. They're saying, well, hey, this is why you wanted him killed, so we're sticking it up there. Right? They were, they were having a little thing. But, but see what's happening here. Right? Like, this, the picture could not be any better. Jesus, on the cross, dying the most horrific death ever. Why is he there? Why is he there? And you look up and the list of why he's there, what is it? It's all your stuff. He doesn't have any stuff to put up there. He is perfectly innocent. There is nothing to take him to that cross that is his. It is all yours. And Paul is saying, this is why forgiveness exists. Because that list of debts, everything you owe to God and have failed and every way you will fail, was taken away from you and stuck to that cross. And Jesus paid it to the last line. And because of that, there is the forgiveness of sins. Sinners, wicked people who rebel against God, who hate him and who hate their neighbors, get forgiven. They get reconciled. They get moved from being enemies of God to being made his friends. They get moved from death to life. They go from being impoverished to being co-heirs with Jesus himself. That's what the forgiveness of sin means. And this is why it exists. It only exists because of the work of Jesus for you. This is as close to the heart of Christianity as it is. This is what the Christian faith is about. We proclaim the forgiveness of sins because Christ is for you. Every way that you have failed, everything you owe, a perfect, holy God has been done for you by Him. First Peter 2.24 tells us that He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Church, this forgiveness, is, it's no fantasy. It's no wishful thinking. It's like, well, I have no other options. Maybe I'll ask for forgiveness. Maybe I'll let it go. It's not some legal fiction. As steep as this debt is, it has been paid by the invaluable currency of the life of the very Son of God. He has paid what you never could. And, and one thing that I've glanced over as many times as I've looked at the Lord's Prayer, I've glanced over it every time until now, of just how wonderful it is that the, the one who's teaching us to pray this, right? Who, who's saying these words? Jesus. Who's the one telling us, pray, ask the Father, forgive my sins? Who's the one telling us to pray that way? Jesus. Jesus is the one saying this. Th think about that, right? The, the disciples he's talking to, they still, still don't have their wrap, heads wrapped around everything yet. Right? They're, they're, they've got a lot to learn and a lot to figure out. But think about Jesus telling them this. Right? When he tells them to pray, Father, forgive us our debts. He's saying it as the one who is going to pay them. Right? This isn't like if you come to me and you're like, you know, I'm your friend. You're like, hey, Patrick, you know, I've got, 
this car payment, I gotta, I gotta get off, do you have any advice? I'm like, well, maybe go ask them if they'll let it go. Maybe they'll just forget about it. Tax write-off. Who knows? Right? Sometimes we can, we can read this almost like it has that much weight. It has so much more. This is the one who paid it telling you this. He's saying, go to the Father and ask for the forgiveness of sins because I know you'll get it. You know why? Because I already paid it. I'm going to provide everything that's needed for that forgiveness. Ride my coattails to the throne of the God of the universe and find it to be a throne of grace because of what I've done. It becomes so much more glorious. Like the one who's going to take all of that and do all that for me is the one telling me to pray this. Someone telling you to pray this. This is not a wishful thing. Father, please forgive my sins. Maybe it'll work. No. You're praying in Jesus' name. The Jesus who had perfect righteousness and took your death. You're saying, Father, forgive my sins because of him. And we know what answer we will get. Because God is just and he cannot look on that payment from Christ himself. And see, your debt is anything but satisfied. So maybe this, I think this leads to one question, right? That, that. I would have when I read this is if that's the case, right? If once we're united to Christ by faith and he's paid that debt and we have this forgiveness, why do we keep confessing? Right? You know, especially if you have any familiarity with like Roman Catholicism, right? You know, there's this practice of penance, right? You sin and you have to go and confess and sometimes you have to do things to make up for it and it's all about kind of keeping the record clean. That's not the biblical gospel. The biblical gospel is once you are united to Christ by faith, you have his full record is imputed to you. His full, complete, total righteousness, nothing to be added to it. And your, all of your sin, past, present, future, goes to him. He died for it, paid for it. It is done. There's nothing left to do. He has finished his work. There's no more sacrifice for sin, including any of your sacrifice. It's over. So why do we pray? Why do we confess our sins every day? This is a daily prayer. We've seen that. What's the point? I was thinking about this in terms of, you know, we pray this to our Father, and I was thinking about this with my kids. And I can tell you this with 100% certainty. When Riley sins against me, that's my four-year-old daughter, and I say when because it will happen, happens often, just like I sinning against her happens often, right? When she sins against me, I guarantee you, I will forgive it. And I can imagine all sorts of horrible things that she could do. I've been a pastor for a long time. I've seen horrific things that people do. And I cannot imagine anything that I could not forgive, that I would not forgive. I can't imagine any kind of pain she would bring me that I would not happily absorb and take to forgive her. Because she's mine. So it's just period. It's just going to happen. That doesn't make me unique or special. I'm sure anybody in here who's a parent would say the same thing. I'll always eat that cost before she even asks. But you know what I'm also doing? I'm teaching her to ask. I confess my sin. When I sin against her, I confess it. When she sins against me, I teach her to confess it. And I teach her to ask for forgiveness. Why? I think there's three, there's probably more, but three things. One is that when we confess our sin daily, it, it, it gets us back to reality, right? It grounds us in reality. This kind of circles back to what we talked about earlier. Right? The, the Christian life is, it's the life of a forgiven sinner, not, not a flawless performer. Confession keeps us grounded in, in this truth. Sin always involves distortion and delusion, right? Temptation always works by convincing us of something that's not true, distorting reality. This will be good for you when it's not. God is this way towards you when he's not. There's always a lie wrapped up in it. So when we confess sin, when we confess rightly what the thing is we did and how it relates to God and all these things, we are being reoriented and regrounding in how things actually are. The delusion is getting shattered. If you guys know, I know you're fellow sinners like me, if you've 
lived in any sin for a length of time, right? You know, there's, there's lots of things that you can kind of harbor under the surface and not bring out to the light. You know the longer that they stay there, the, the stronger they get. They grow. The lies get more persuasive. They linger longer. You start going further in the same realm of things. And that's because that false reality sinks in and gets more and more real. So part of what confession does when we confess daily and we bring to God the ways that we have fallen for these distortions is it, 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 it resets things, right? It regrounds us in the reality of how things actually are. It brings us back to the real world. It keeps us from pretending that we were okay in doing this. It keeps us from pretending that we can do enough to make up for this. It reminds us of the fundamental reality that I owe perfect righteousness to God. I don't have it, but there's forgiveness of sins in Jesus. Expose all that junk to the light. First John says this, if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, walking in the light imagery is very, very helpful on two fronts, right? We want to walk in the light in, the fact, in that we want to live a life of righteousness. We want to honor God with what we do. But we also want to walk in the light in the sense that when we don't do that, when we do sin, we walk with that, those things exposed. We walk seeing those things for what they really are. We don't allow the delusions and the lies of sin and Satan and our flesh and the world to persist and shape the way we perceive reality. That's part of what confession does. It brings us back to reality. It's safe for us. Confession is one of God's protections for you. All right, second thing. Why do we confess daily, even if we're already forgiven? Well, it's, it expresses love. Right? This is one of the things we have to learn in this world. We have to learn to express love as people who fail other people. Right? It'd be nice if we could love people by just being perfect and never hurting them. Doesn't happen. Does not happen. If you've had a close friend, if you have family, if you have a spouse, you know often the people that you are closest to and that you love the most are the ones you end up hurting the most just because of the proximity. And one of the things that we have to learn to have relationships as sinners is how do we express love in the aftermath of failing those we love? And asking for forgiveness is absolutely essential to that. To ask for forgiveness when I sin against my wife, when I ask her for forgiveness, it's me acknowledging the reality that I have, I have hurt her, right? I have done something wrong, right? I am wrong and I am now indebted to her. I, I, owed, I owed her something and I did not give it and now I am in her debt and I need mercy and grace from her. So I, saying I'm sorry is very different from asking for forgiveness. Very, very different things. I bump into you on accident, I'll tell you I'm sorry. But when I've sinned against you, I need to ask for forgiveness. I am in your debt. And if I love you and I've sinned against you, I need to acknowledge the reality of that. Right? That's the best way I can love you in that moment when I have failed, is to recognize what I've done and my need for grace and mercy. So it's how we love when we fail. And that doesn't just work with people, it's the same way with God, right? We, we want to honor him now, not to earn our righteousness, but because of all that he's given to us. And we fail daily, but we don't want to, right? We want to please him. We want to love the things he loves and hate the things that he hates. But when we do fail, how do we love him in the midst of that failure? We confess it. We recognize it. We see it the same way that he does. Lastly, and maybe even most importantly, confession reminds us of his love. Far more important than being an expression of our love, when we confess our sins, we are reminded of who he is and how he is towards us and what he has done for us. I think a beautiful example of this is the prodigal son. Right, so the prodigal son, the two boys, they're, they're already his sons. So there's two kids. 
One of the kids leaves. And what do you see? Right? This kid runs off, wastes his father's fortune, all this. It's just horrible, horrible. And he says, okay, I'll come back and try to be a servant in my father's house. That'd be better than what I've got going on right now. And what happens when he turns and goes to the father? The father runs to him. The guy doesn't even get the words out of his mouth. So the father runs out and hugs him and is throwing a party. He won't let the son come back as a servant. He'll only take him as a son. Right? Right? So this is when he confessed, when he was able to acknowledge what he'd done, what did he get to see? His father loved him the whole time. His father's ne- father heart never changed towards him. The father was constant. Right? But he got to see it when he confessed. Right? This is why when, when we corporately, when we confess our sins at the beginning of service, we acknowledge this. And never if you confess our sins, then we just move on. What do we do after that? What do I do? What does David do? Right? What do I tell you? We give you an assurance of pardon. We remind you of the answer that you have. We remind you that your sins have, in fact, been forgiven. We remind you of what you, welcome you receive when you do do this. And that's what confession gives the opportunity to do. Whether you're confessing to a brother or sister, whether we're doing it here together, when you confess, it gives the opportunity for the gospel to come rushing in and to see it in all its beauty and its glory. And like, I sin, but look, God loves me like that. He did that for me. Me, a sinner who did that. When we don't confess, when that is buried, we don't get that. Right? God's heart hasn't changed because it's fixed because of Christ, but we don't get the joy of being reminded of his heart and reminded of what we have in him. Now, we realize the glory of the forgiveness of sins, the, the richness of what that little simple phrase means. When we realize what we've been talking about here, that we have gone from indebted people who deserve death to sharing in the riches of the Son of God himself as a sheer gift of grace. When, we, when that has happened to you, when you've been lifted from the slums and you've been moved into the king's palace as a child, you cannot be the same person. You, you are fundamentally different than you were before. You cannot receive that much and be the same. One of the fundamental things about Christianity is that we don't act to earn God's love. We don't act to merit anything from him. The way God loves us acts on us and shapes us and changes us and changes what we do, right? It flips that whole thing on its head. We are not working to earn things from God. God is working in us to make us different and causing us to work and operate in completely different ways. And that's what the second part of this prayer is all about, right? The forgiveness we've received should shape us. And one of the ways that that shaping forms is that it manifests in forgiving others. Jesus says that we should ask that our debts be forgiven as we forgive our debtors. And he actually expands this part of the prayer at the end of it in Matthew 6, 14 through 15. He says, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive you your trespasses. Now, at first glance, I don't like this part. It sounds like trouble to me. All right. Forgive us our debts as we forgive those who are our debtors. Sounds like a really bad deal to me because I don't forgive that great, even on my best days. And if God's forgiveness is based on how well I forgive, there is no good news in this. You need to just erase everything I've already said. That's not what this is about, right? The way that we forgive others is not meritorious. 
We don't forgive others so that we might be forgiven. God's not just sitting around there and saying, like, let's see what they can come up with. I, I, hope, you know, I hope they give a good run at it because my hands are tied. I can only do as good as they can do. That's not it. That's not the idea that's captured here. This would be horrible. What it does mean is that being forgiven, this happening to you is so profound that you will be changed. That, that the idea that there's somebody who would receive this kind of forgiveness and then would be ungracious, unforgiving, bitter, just as they were before with other people, like, doesn't even make sense. That is not a creature that, that can exist. It doesn't work. Right? It's completely incompatible. That's what, he, that's what he's getting at when he says, if you don't forgive, the Father won't forgive you. It's not a meritorious thing. He's saying, if none of this shifts for you, then you never knew the forgiveness of God in the first place because you could not be like this. You could not be like this if you actually knew the grace and mercy of God. If the way we relate to others does not change in light of what we have received, we have no reason to actually think we've been forgiven. One of the primary fruits of Christians, right? One of the primary fruits of being forgiven shows up in our gracious disposition towards our fellow, our fellow sinners. That parable I referenced, we'll, we'll preach through it down the road here a little bit. You know, this servant goes to the king and asks for this massive debt to be forgiven. The king forgives it. Then he goes to a fellow servant who owes him a decent amount of money, but nothing like he's been forgiven. And he demands it of him, and he hasn't thrown in jail and stuff. Right? He was forgiven, and it, and it did not affect him. Right? And, and that was Jesus painting a picture of what the opposite of what this looks like. What should have happened with that servant is when he was forgiven his billion dollars or anything, and he's got his little buddy heroes and 5,000 bucks, should have been the easiest thing in the world to be like, I, I've got that, man. Like, you won't believe what happened to me, right? Like, this is what happened. So don't even worry. Don't even worry about the 5,000. It's small potatoes. Look what I've got. Right? And the, the reality is that we've, we've kind of seen this throughout the Sermon on the Mount so far, right? That, that the citizens of the kingdom, that's what the sermon is about, right? It's describing the kingdom of God and who these people are that belong to it. We've seen already that, that they get changed with the way they relate to other people, starting with the Beatitudes, right? The citizens of this kingdom are what they're made meek, right? Meek is, is not exacting what you need from somebody else, but entrusting yourself to God and allowing God to judge, essentially. Right? That, that's a very gracious disposition towards people who can harm you. Right? We see also in the Beatitudes, blessed are the merciful. You know, tied in with mercy for their forgiveness of sins is right there. They're twins. Right? This is one of the things that God makes the citizens of his kingdom. He makes them merciful. He also makes them peacemakers. That's certainly bound up with the forgiveness of sins, right? You can't be a peacemaker if you have no category for forgiving those who sin against you. Continue on, and at the end of chapter 5, we're told that we should turn the other cheek when we are slapped. That when the oppressive foreign military asks you to carry their stuff for a mile, you should go an extra one if you can. That you should love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. All of these things fit in this contour of a person who has been radically reshaped by the grace and mercy that they have received. The fact that they cannot relate to the people around them the same way anymore. They have a whole new wealth to draw from in the way that they engage their fellow sinners. When you realize what we have already seen, I can never be asked to forgive more to show more mercy and grace than I have received. I will always be a debtor to mercy. I will always be a debtor to mercy. You will always be a debtor to mercy. If I have received so much, how could I not forgive and show grace in these small things? Guys, the, the life of the church is supposed to be a life of a forgiven people, a forgiven 
people, a people who are stunned and over the fact that, like, mercy has come to me? Like, I've received grace? This makes no sense. This is crazy. Like, everything else is great. Like, we, sh- we live life overwhelmed by what we've received. And when we do, these things that happen, and they happen. They're real debts. People really sin against us. People will really use you at times. Things happen. Not to minimize that. But in light of what we've received, we now have a wealth to draw on to forgive those debts, to absorb costs that we never thought we'd have been able to before. And now we are here, right? Like we are here, church. We are God's embassy to bear witness to the fact that there is forgiveness of sin with Christ. And when we are sinned against, when we are wrong, that we get the chance to show grace and mercy. We get to bear witness in a tiny little way that that exists, right? That there is a solution to sin that does not involve you working your way out of it or pretending it away. That there is such a thing as forgiveness. We get to be here to testify in some small way, little tiny ways, to the glory of what we've received. And what is proclaimed to the world in Jesus until he comes again. The forgiveness of sins. As debtors who have been made wealthy by grace. Our purposes now with others are not to extort them. Not to get out of them what we can. Not to get our pound of flesh. But to show them just a fraction of the mercy we've received. That is our privilege. That's the word that gets thrown around. We are... Christians, we are legitimately privileged. We operate from a totally unique space. We went from being absolute spiritual beggars to being spiritually wealthy beyond our dreams. We have incredible privilege. And with that wealth comes the privilege of being able to not exact every little thing from every little person. That's a glorious thing to be able to do. That's a wonderful Gifts to be entrusted with. So we pray as we forgive our, our debtors, we're praying that God would make us people that would, that would revel in mercy, that would just delight in grace. That, that when somebody sins against me, I don't come to you like, oh man, I guess I have to forgive. Dang it. Hate those verses. But no, we would say, like, I've been sinning. I get the chance. I get the chance to show somebody grace and mercy. I get the chance to look a little bit like this good heavenly father who has given me so much. I get to look a little bit like dad right now by letting this tiny infinitesimal thing go and showing grace and mercy and absorbing that cost myself. What a thing. I get to, I get to look like him in this. Forgiveness is not some miserable duty imposed on you, Christian. It is, your, it is your privilege. It is your joy. It is your delight to be able to look like your father in this way. Church, may everybody, may everyone who comes into touch right, with Christ's church here at Covenant Grace, Our prayer should be that everyone who comes into touch with us would taste the the salt air of mercy and grace in the way they interact with us. When they sin against us, when they rub us wrong, when when they're quirky and they irritate us, that they would would smell that that freshness. Like, what is that? Why, Why do they do that? There must be something, there must be something really good behind that. This is part of our witness, church, and what a glorious part of it is. We have been forgiven, and now we get to be forgivers. We get to delight in showing grace and mercy. Right? This is not a burden. This is a joy. May God make it that for us. Let me pray for us. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for just what... A fantastic thing it is that we get to pray this. That when we pray, our Father, we can say, forgive us our debts. I can say, Father, forgive my debts. And I can know it is answered. 
I can know what answer I will receive because what Jesus Christ has done. He has paid off those debts in full. So what a joy confession is now. I don't have to pretend like I'm not a sinner. I don't have to pretend like I can somehow make up for it or be good enough. I can throw myself on your mercy and I will find it every time because of Jesus. Thank you for that. Lord, I just I pray that our church would be shaped and, and undeniably formed by that reality. Christians are not the people with the moral high ground. They are not the strong people. They are not the wise people. They are not the beautiful people. They are the sinners who have found forgiveness and grace and mercy. May that be what people would say of us when they engage with us, when they interact with us. Lord, give us a delight to be merciful and gracious. Give us a delight to show just the tiniest touch of what we've received from you to those around us. We pray this all in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.